Section 8 of Chapter 17 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Mattingly. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 17, Section 8. Early in the spring, the government, if it is to be so called, of which Berwick was the ostensible head, was dissolved by the return of Tyrconnell. The Luttrells had, in the name of their countrymen, implored James not to subject so loyal a people to so odious and incapable a viceroy. Tyrconnell, they said, was old, he was infirm, he needed much sleep, he knew nothing of war, he was dilatory, he was partial, he was rapacious, he was distrusted and hated by the whole nation. The Irish, deserted by him, had made a gallant stand, and had compelled the victorious army of the Prince of Orange to retreat. They hoped soon to take the field again, thirty thousand strong, and they adjured their king to send them some captain worthy to command such a force. Tyrconnell and Maxwell, on the other hand, represented the delegates as mutineers, demagogues, traitors, and pressed James to send Henry Luttrell to keep Mountjoy company in the Bastille. James, bewildered by these criminations and recriminations, hesitated long, and at last, with characteristic wisdom, relieved himself from trouble by giving all the quarrellers fair words and by sending them all back to have their fight out in Ireland. Berwick was at the same time recalled to France. Tyrconnell was received at Limerick, even by his enemies, with decent respect. Much as they hated him, they could not question the validity of his commission and though they still maintained that they had been perfectly justified in annulling during his absence the unconstitutional arrangements which he had made, they acknowledged that, when he was present, he was their lawful governor. He was not altogether unprovided with the means of conciliating them. He brought many gracious messages and promises, a patent of peerage for Sarsfield, some money which was not of brass, and some clothing which was even more acceptable than money. The new garments were not indeed very fine, but even the generals had long been out at elbows, and there were few of the common men whose habiliments would have been thought sufficient to dress a scarecrow in a more prosperous country. Now at length, for the first time in many months, every private soldier could boast a pair of breeches and a pair of brogues. The Lord Lieutenant had also been authorised to announce that he should soon be followed by several ships, laden with provisions and military stores. This announcement was most welcome to the troops who had long been without bread and who had nothing stronger than water to drink. During some weeks the supplies were impatiently expected. At last Tyrconnell was forced to shut himself up, for, whenever he appeared in public, the soldiers ran after him clamouring for food. Even the beef and mutton, which, half raw, half burnt, without vegetables, without salt, had hitherto supported the army, had become scarce and the common men were on rations of horse-flesh when the promised sails were seen in the mouth of the Shannon. A distinguished French general named Saint-Ruth was on board with his staff. He bought a commission which appointed him commander-in-chief of the Irish army. The commission did not expressly declare that he was to be independent of the vice-regal authority, but he had been assured by James that Tyre Connell should have secret instructions not to intermeddle in the conduct of the war. Saint-Ruth was assisted by another general officer named Dusson. The French ships bought some arms, some ammunition, and a plentiful supply of corn and flour. 
the spirits of the Irish rose, and the Te Deum was chaunted with fervent devotion in the Cathedral of Limerick. Tyrconnell had made no preparations for the approaching campaign, but Saint Ruth, as soon as he had landed, exerted himself strenuously to redeem the time which had been lost. He was a man of courage, activity, and resolution, but of a harsh and imperious nature. In his own country he was celebrated as the most merciless persecutor that had ever dragooned the Huguenots to mass. It was asserted by English Whigs that he was known in France by the nickname of the hangman, and that, at Rome, the very cardinals had shown their abhorrence of his cruelty, and that even Queen Christina, who had little right to be squeamish about bloodshed, had turned away from him with loathing. He had recently held a command in Savoy. The Irish regiments in the French service had formed part of his army and had behaved extremely well. It was therefore supposed that he had a peculiar talent for managing Irish troops. But there was a wide difference between the well-clad, well-armed and well-drilled Irish with whom he was familiar and the ragged marauders whom he found swarming in the alleys of Limerick. Accustomed to the splendour and the discipline of French camps and garrisons, he was disgusted by finding that, in the country to which he had been sent, a regiment of infantry meant a mob of people as naked, as dirty, and as disorderly as the beggars whom he had been accustomed to see on the continent, besieging the door of a monastery, or pursuing a diligence up him. With ill-concealed contempt, however, he addressed himself vigorously to the task of disciplining these strange soldiers, and was day and night in the saddle, galloping from post to post, from Limerick to Athlone, from Athlone to the northern extremity of Loch Ray, and from Loch Ray back to Limerick. It was indeed necessary that he should bestir himself, for a few days after his arrival he learned that, on the other side of the pale, all was ready for action. The greater part of the English force was collected, before the close of May, in the neighbourhood of Mullingar. Ginkell commanded in chief. He had under him the two best officers after Marlborough, of whom our island could then boast, Talmash and Mackay. The Marquis of Ruvigny, the hereditary chief of the refugees, and elder brother of the brave Kayamot, who had fallen at the Boyne, had joined the army with the rank of Major General. The Lord Justice Coningsby, though not by profession a soldier, came down from Dublin to animate the zeal of the troops. The appearance of the camp showed that the money voted by the English Parliament had not been spared. The uniforms were new, the ranks were one blaze of scarlet, and the train of artillery was such as had never before been seen in Ireland. On the 6th of June, Ginkell moved his headquarters from Mullingar. On the 7th, he reached Ballymore. At Ballymore, on a peninsula almost surrounded by something between a swamp and a lake, stood an ancient fortress which had recently been fortified under Sarsfield's direction, and which was defended by above a thousand men. The English guns were instantly planted. In a few hours the besiegers had the satisfaction of seeing the besieged running like rabbits from one shelter to another. The governor, who had at first held high language, begged piteously for quarter, and obtained it. The whole garrison were marched off to Dublin. Only eight of the conquerors had fallen. Ginkell passed some days in reconstructing the defences of Ballymore. This work had scarcely been performed when he was joined by the Danish auxiliaries under the command of the Duke of Württemberg. The whole army then moved westwards, and on the 19th of June appeared before the walls of Athlone. Athlone was perhaps, in a military point of view, the most important place in the island. Rosen, who understood war well, had always maintained that it was there that the Irishry would, with most advantage, make a stand against the Englishry. 
The town, which was surrounded by ramparts of earth, lay partly in Leinster and partly in Connaught. The English quarter, which was in Leinster, had once consisted of new and handsome houses, but had been burned by the Irish some months before, and now lay in heaps of ruin. The Celtic quarter, which was in Connaught, was old and meanly built. The Shannon, which is the boundary of the two provinces, rushed through Athlone in a deep and rapid stream, and turned two large mills, which rose on the arches of a stone bridge. Above the bridge on the Connaught side, a castle, built it was said by King John, towered to the height of seventy feet, and extended two hundred feet along the river. Fifty or sixty yards below the bridge was a narrow ford. During the night of the 19th, the English placed their cannon. On the morning of the 20th, the firing began. At five in the afternoon, an assault was made. A brave French refugee with a grenade in his hand was the first to climb the breach and fell, cheering his countrymen to the onset with his latest breath. Such were the gallant spirits which the bigotry of Lewis had sent to recruit, in the time of his utmost need, the armies of his deadliest enemies. The example was not lost. The grenades fell thick, the assailants mounted by hundreds, the Irish gave way and ran towards the bridge. There the press was so great that some of the fugitives were crushed to death in the narrow passage, and others were forced over the parapets into the waters which roared among the mill-wheels below. In a few hours Ginkel had made himself master of the English quarter of Athlone, and this success had cost him only twenty men killed and forty wounded. But his work was only begun. Between him and the Irish town, the Shannon ran fiercely. The bridge was so narrow that a few resolute men might keep it against an army. The mills which stood on it were strongly guarded, and it was commanded by the guns of the castle. That part of the Connaught shore where the river was fordable was defended by works, which the Lord Lieutenant had, in spite of the murmurs of a powerful party, forced Sir Ruth to entrust to the care of Maxwell. Maxwell had come back from France, a more unpopular man than he had been when he went thither. It was rumoured that he had, at Versailles, spoken opprobriously of the Irish nation, and he had on this account been, only a few days before, publicly affronted by Sarsfield. On the 21st of June the English were busied in flinging up batteries along the Leinster bank. On the 22nd, soon after dawn, the cannonade began. The firing continued all that day and all the following night. When morning broke again, one whole side of the castle had been beaten down. The thatched lanes of the Celtic town lay in ashes, and one of the mills had been burned with sixty soldiers who defended it. Still, however, the Irish defended the bridge resolutely. During several days there was sharp fighting hand to hand in the straight passage. The assailants gained ground, but gained it inch by inch. The courage of the garrison was sustained by the hope of speedy succour. St. Ruth had at length completed his preparations, and the tidings that Athlone was in danger had induced him to take the field in haste at the head of an army superior in number, though inferior in more important elements of military strength, to the army of Ginkel. The French general seems to have thought that the bridge and the ford might easily be defended till the autumnal rains, and the pestilence which ordinarily accompanied them should compel the enemy to retire. He therefore contented himself with sending successive detachments to reinforce the garrison. The immediate conduct of the defence he entrusted to his second-in-command, Doucin, and fixed his own headquarters two or three miles from the town. He expressed his astonishment that so experienced a commander as Ginkel should persist in a hopeless enterprise. 
His master ought to hang him for trying to take Athlone, and mine ought to hang me if I lose it. Sir Ruth, however, was by no means at ease. He had found to his great mortification that he had not the full authority which the promises made to him at Saint-Germain had entitled him to expect. The Lord Lieutenant was in the camp. His bodily and mental infirmities had perceptibly increased within the last few weeks. The slow and uncertain step with which he, who had once been renowned for vigour and agility, now tottered from his easy chair to his couch, was no unapt type of the sluggish and wavering movement of that mind which had once pursued its objects with a vehemence restrained neither by fear nor by pity, neither by conscience nor by shame. Yet, with impaired strength, both physical and intellectual, the broken old man clung pertinaciously to power. If he had received private orders not to meddle with the conduct of the war, he disregarded them. He assumed all the authority of a sovereign, showed himself ostentatiously to the troops as their supreme chief, and affected to treat St. Ruth as a lieutenant. Soon the interference of the viceroy excited the vehement indignation of that powerful party in the army which had long hated him. Many officers signed an instrument by which they declared that they did not consider him as entitled to their obedience in the field. Some of them offered him gross personal insults. He was told to his face that, if he persisted in remaining where he was not wanted, the ropes of his pavilion should be cut. He, on the other hand, sent his emissaries to all the campfires and tried to make a party among the common soldiers against the French general. The only thing in which Tyrconnell and Sir Ruth agreed was in dreading and disliking Sarsfield. Not only was he popular with the great body of his countrymen, he was also surrounded by a knot of retainers whose devotion to him resembled the devotion of the Ismailite murderers to the old man of the mountain. It was known that one of these fanatics, a colonel, had used language which, in the mouth of an officer so high in rank, might well cause uneasiness. The king, this man had said, is nothing to me. I obey Sarsfield. Let Sarsfield tell me to kill any man in the whole army, and I will do it. Sarsfield was indeed too honourable a gentleman to abuse his immense power over the minds of his worshippers. But the viceroy and the commander-in-chief might not unnaturally be disturbed by the thought that Sarsfield's honour was their only guarantee against mutiny and assassination. The consequence was that, at the crisis of the fate of Ireland, the services of the first of Irish soldiers was not used, or were used with jealous caution, and that, if he ventured to offer a suggestion, it was received with a sneer or a frown. A great and unexpected disaster put an end to these disputes. On the 30th of June, Ginkell called a council of war. Forage began to be scarce, and it was absolutely necessary that the besiegers should either force their way across the river or retreat. The difficulty of effecting a passage over the shattered remains of the bridge seemed almost insuperable. It was proposed to try the ford. The Duke of Württemberg, Talmash and Ruvigny gave their voices in favour of this plan, and Ginkell, with some misgivings, consented. It was determined that the attempt should be made that very afternoon. The Irish, fancying that the English were about to retreat, kept guard carelessly. Part of the garrison was idling, part dosing. Dusson was at table, Saint-Ruth was in his tent, writing a letter to his master, filled with charges against Tyrconnell. Meanwhile, fifteen hundred grenadiers, each wearing in his hat a green bough, were mustered on the Leinster bank of the Shannon. Many of them doubtless remembered that on that day year they had, at the command of King William, put green boughs in their hats on the banks of the Boyne. 
Guineas had been liberally scattered among these picked men, but their alacrity was such as gold cannot purchase. Six battalions were in readiness to support the attack. Mackay commanded. He did not approve of the plan, but he executed it as zealously and energetically as if he had himself been the author of it. The Duke of Württemberg, Talmash, and several other gallant officers, to whom no part in the enterprise had been assigned, insisted on serving that day as private volunteers, and their appearance in the ranks excited the fiercest enthusiasm among the soldiers. It was six o'clock. A peal from the steeple of the church gave the signal. Prince George of Hesse-Darmstadt and Gustavus Hamilton, the brave chief of the Enniskillens, descended first into the Shannon and then the grenadiers lifted the Duke of Württemberg on their shoulders, and with a great shout plunged twenty abreast up to their cravats in water. The stream ran deep and strong, but in a few minutes the head of the column reached dry land. Talmash was the fifth man that set foot on the Connaught shore. The Irish, taken unprepared, fired one confused volley and fled, leaving their commander Maxwell a prisoner. The conquerors clambered up the bank over the remains of walls shattered by a cannonade of ten days. Mackay heard his men cursing and swearing as they stumbled among the rubbish. "'My lads!' cried the stoutile Puritan in the midst of the uproar. "'You are brave fellows, but do not swear. We have more reason to thank God for the goodness which he has shown us this day than to take his name in vain.' The victory was complete. Planks were placed on the broken arches of the bridge, and pontoons laid on the river without any opposition on the part of the terrified garrison. With the loss of twelve men killed and about thirty wounded, the English had, in a few minutes, forced their way into Connaught. At the first alarm, Dusson hastened towards the river, but he was met, swept away, trampled down, and almost killed by the torrent of fugitives. He was carried to the camp in such a state that it was necessary to bleed him. "'Taken!' cried Sam Ruth in dismay. "'It cannot be. A town taken, and I close by with an army to relieve it.' Cruelly mortified, he struck his tents under cover of the night and retreated in the direction of Galway. At dawn the English saw far off from the top of King John's ruined castle the Irish army moving through the dreary region which separates the Shannon from the Suck. Before noon the rearguard had disappeared. End of section 8